Um, so if you're at home, we're looking at Colossians 3, uh, 1 to 14. So will you read with me? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Sit at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the Word of God. Welcome. Uh, Great to have you with us. And this is it. This is the final week in Thrive. And I hope is that as we open the Word of God and as you understand the Gospel, it really will transform the way you approach this season, but also life more broadly. And um, as um, Cam mentioned before, even though this series is finishing, I'm really looking forward to getting into deep. As we're saying, we believe that, that followers of Jesus, and really it's in the passage that, that Cam just read out as well, followers of Jesus as we grow should be knowing God through His Word more deeply, but that should lead to deeply transformed lives. The Christian life is not just about a bunch of intellectual truths that you can rattle off, but actually about knowing God deeply. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us that that would be the case in a minute. But um, for those who are here in the building, could I ask you one thing? How would you feel about, just so, you know, look, we don't get to see people much. How would you feel about safely, one and a half meters apart, sliding forward a bit? Just so, you know, just so everyone's a bit closer. Yeah, I feel like a teacher with like the classes all busted and at the back of the room. Come through, guys. Yeah, come up. And if you're at home, get closer to the set so you can see us a lot closer. That'd be great to do. Thanks, guys, for doing that. Yeah, it's one and a half meters, not one and a half light years. So you're all very safe where you are. And, uh, and I'm going to pray for us that, um, that we as a community would be able to encourage one another to press on for Jesus. And that as we open God's word, that you'd be encouraged wherever you're at this afternoon. I'm going to pray. Father, we just thank you that there is nothing outside of your control. That you right now are as sovereign today as you were yesterday and will be millennia from now. You are a perfectly good and sovereign God. You were seated on the throne when Jesus, Jesus was crucified and when he rose from the dead. And you continue to reign and to bring about your purposes even right now across the globe and even in individual hearts right now. And so, Father, I pray that as we open your word in Colossians, that you would speak to us, that we would hear what you have to say to us, and all for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, this week, week four, we are looking at change. So we tried to sum up each week in this way. The first week was overcoming apathy with awe. 
The second week was overcoming, what was that? I did that one. Frustration with purpose. The third week, last week, was overcoming passivity with love. And the fourth week, probably not my best one, but overcoming stuck with genuine change. Just, just travel with me on this one. The truth is, I think a lot of people feel a little bit stuck when it comes to actually changing. Years ago, um, an Australian director called Andrew Dominic set off a trend that Australia just hasn't been able to shake ever since, and that was the trend of doing kind of uh, movies or TV series about underworld figures from either Sydney or Melbourne. And the reason it happened was he, he spent a lot of time with a character called Mark Chopper Reed, who was kind of a, a, a standover man in the 80s and 90s in Melbourne, who then kind of transitioned to being kind of a bit of a, a cult celebrity slash comedian, um, someone that the kind of popular culture sort of adopted, even though he'd done terrible things. He had this kind of strangely endearing kind of humor and, uh, and sort of way to him. But, um, but Andrew Dominic spent a fair bit of time with Chopper to get his story and then turned it into a film. But when he was reflecting on some of the, I guess, personality quirks of this standover man, one of the things that he observed that was really strange for a man who was as tough and as violent as Chopper was that he noticed that people who hurt Chopper would continue to do so and would kind of get away with it in a way that you wouldn't expect from a standover man. But then similarly, people that he had hurt, he would continue to hurt. It was this weird pattern, and it continued on throughout his life. And he said he'd kind of put his career criminality behind him. And so someone was asking Andrew Dominic, look, what do you think about this? Is, is Chopper a new man or whatever? And Andrew Dominic said this. He said, 99% of people, and he's no statistician, so he's just saying a lot of people or most of people, but 99% of people never change significantly over the course of their life Therefore, the greatest single indicator of future behavior is past behavior. That was his reflection. 99% of people don't really change. So if you want to know what someone's going to be like, just look at what they have been like. That's kind of a sad reality. But in some ways, all of us have kind of experienced this, maybe in small ways. There are ways in which you think, why, why, why can't I change this? Why do I always hit snooze over and over again? Why do I procrastinate key tasks? Why do I snap at my kids or my spouse? Why do I always forget important dates or events? Why is it that I always buy a snack when I get petrol? Why can't I just shake certain habits that keep happening? And they might be kind of superficial like that, or they might be deeper kind of things. Maybe it's more like, why do I keep rehearsing hurts from my past over and over again in my mind? Why do I always act just like I did when I was 15 when I get into family gatherings? Why is it that I get stuck in this rut where it's like all of a sudden when I'm around my family, it's like I'm back in year nine and I can't seem to shake that dynamic? Why is it that I keep being drawn to people who are a bad influence on me? They look different, but as I get to know them, I'm like, this is the same person again and again. Why do I keep uh, being drawn to the same kind of destructive behaviors? Every time I pass one, I just seem to add a new one. Lots of people just feel stuck. Like, why can't I seem to change in any really significant, non-superficial manner? Because we want change. We love change. Pretty much every show you consume right now, whether it's a TV show or movie, is about change, isn't it? Even MasterChef is about change. The, every, every show is about a character actually developing. In fact, the least satisfying storylines 
are ones where no one really changes significantly throughout the, the, the length of the narrative. We want to see change. And one of the reasons we want to is I think there is a deep understanding that we are ourselves deeply flawed. There are things about us that we want to change. We want to be different. We want to actually grow. What I want to put to you today is that the gospel stands alone in its approach to change. Every major world religion operates in this way. If you change, God will accept you. If you obey, if you fulfill certain laws, then God or a supernatural force will accept you and bless you. Christianity alone is the one that says, because God has accepted you, you'll change. And that is a fundamentally different way of looking at change behavior and at genuine transformation. And that's what Paul is going to lay out in the book of Colossians as we open it up. I'm going to give you just a quick crash course on the book of Colossians. If you're here and tuning in and you're not familiar with the Bible, don't stress out. It's not like everyone here is really familiar with like ancient Near Eastern you know, geography or whatever. So we're just going to breeze through what's actually happening here. But Paul was a guy who hated Christians, hated Jesus, killed, persecuted Christians until he met Jesus and had his life completely transformed. Then he began to follow Jesus and tell everyone about him. He planted churches all the way through Asia Minor and Greece, and uh, it was prolific in telling people about Jesus. But this is the only book in the Bible where Paul is writing to a church that he has never met. He says that he knows someone from this church called Epaphras, but Colossae, the the town that he's writing to, is the smallest town that any of the letters in the Bible are written to. It's a nowhere town. It's nothing. There's hardly any population there. It's not a center of trade. What's happened is when Paul was teaching in Ephesus, he taught for two years in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, which just sounds immense, doesn't it? That's a great thing to to call a hall. But he he taught there. and, uh, And as they did in that culture, they would go somewhere to hear new teachings. Paul was teaching about Jesus. A lot of people came to follow Christ. One of these was probably Epaphras, who then went back to his hometown of Colossae and planted a church there. And Paul has heard about this church, so he's writing to this little church that's just starting out to encourage them to press on for Jesus. And so he writes to this Colossian church uh, an encouragement to go on to maturity. Look at what he says in Colossians 1, 9 to 11. It says, And so from the day that we heard... So this is the church that Paul has heard about, but he's never visited them. It says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Maturity, Paul is saying, is growing in your understanding of God, knowing God's will, His purpose for your life, knowing Him more, and also bearing fruit in good works. It's knowledge and it's action. Now, if you grew up in a church context, it may have been a church that maybe lifted one above the other. Maybe in the church context you grew up, knowing the Bible was the mark of being a really mature Christian. You could say words that other people couldn't pronounce and that nobody used in normal conversation, but that was kind of a signifier that you were a mature Christian. You kind of knew the Bible. You could rattle off Bible verses uh, and you knew Kumbaya or something like that. I don't know. Did anyone even sing that in church? I don't know. That was more a campfire thing. 
But maybe you went to a church where it was the other way. It wasn't big on diving deep into the scriptures, but it was about kind of certain behaviors, things that you did that marked that you were a mature Christian. And it was those people who did those things who were seen as leaders or as people who were kind of mature in the church. Well, Paul is saying maturity for a Christian, growth means growing in knowing God and in action, in actually changed deeds. He says here that you be bearing fruit in every good work. It's not just head knowledge. It's actually changing the way that you relate to other people. So then the question is, well, what's the motivation for this? Paul is saying you need to grow in your knowledge of God. You need to grow in how you're living for Jesus and being like him. But why is it so that God will accept you? Well, no, look at the very next sentence. Colossians 1, 12 to 14. Look at what we read. He says, you know, you're to press on to mature. And then he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he says, you're to grow in your knowledge and in your living for Jesus, giving thanks to the Father. Why? Because you have qualified yourself, because you presented an immaculate CV to God, and God thought, you're the kind of person I want on my team. No, he says, because God qualified you, meaning you were disqualified. Your resume was not up to scratch, and yet he accepted you. And he did this, it says, through Jesus, in whom we have redemption, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. It wasn't that we were perfect people. We were sinners, we were messy, we were broken, and God said, I'm going to have you. He said, I'm going to love you, I'm going to forgive your sins. And this was at no minor cost, because as Paul goes on through the letter, he explains just how far God had to go to qualify you to be one of his children and to bring you into his family. Look at what it says in 2.13 and 14. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's a very Jewish term. We're just going to bounce over that. God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven all of our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He says, we were dead in our sin. That is, we wanted nothing to do with God, completely separated from it. And not only that, unable to change ourselves. In a state of spiritual deadness, though physically alive, unable to connect with God or to reach out to Him and unwilling to. And then it says, even while we're in that state, He cancelled the written debt that was against us. Now, he's, he's writing to a culture that would have been largely merchants and artisans and working people, and he's using an illustration that they would have understood. A, a written record of debt was something that you would get if you owed money in that culture, and it would have happened in the town of Colossae if you took out a loan. It was written down what you owed, and someone could hold that over you so that if you did not pay it and it was not cancelled, you could be arrested or have to pay off your work through slavery. And so it would have been familiar to them, the idea of having this written debt hanging over your head. Paul is saying that's what sin was like. It was a debt that we couldn't pay off ourselves. And he says, and God came in sending Jesus to die on the cross to cancel that debt completely. That's how he qualified you to be one of his people. He did it. He saved us. 
But it's not just that he, he did that. Notice that all of the language is about that he was the one who brought us from darkness to light. He's the one who welcomed us in. He's the one who qualified us. When I, when I went to youth group as a kid, I went along basically because basically there was a few friends that I had there, but I had, I had no interest in understanding Christ. I wasn't a follower of Jesus, and the talks were just like the teacher from Peanuts. It was just like, man, 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 right. And so mo- I forgot most of what happened in the night because I was just waiting until the after bit where you could all hang out. But I remember hearing one illustration that stuck with me, and it was meant to be an illustration about how it is that you get saved. The idea of how disproportionate it is between how much effort God puts in and then how much we put in. And the idea was like, you're at sea, there's no hope of rescue, a chopper comes out and Jesus is in the chopper, just forgive that part of the illustration for a bit, and reaches out and, uh, and, you, and faith is kind of like just putting your hand out to get help. So, you know, it's, you're doing almost nothing, all you've done is put your hand up to get help. Can I put to you that according to Colossians, that's not an accurate illustration. According to Colossians, this is what happened. You're out at sea with no hope of rescue. Jesus comes out in the chopper, reaches out and says, do you want some help? And you say, no thanks, haven't swum for a while, but I've got a good feeling about this one. I'm going to make it on my own. And you start swimming for yourself and then he sends his spirit into your heart so that you'll see the danger you are in and see the goodness of Christ and reach out and be saved. That he had to do all of that just that we might be his people. God intervened in a huge way. To be a child of God, if you believe the gospel, that I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, I have faith in Christ, He is the Son of God who died for me, all of that is because God did that work in your life. The basis of change for the Christian is that there has been a supernatural intervention in your life. The basis of change for the Christian is that there has been a supernatural intervention in your life. And do you know what? Most of the stories at least Western stories, echo this truth of the gospel. Think about how many stories, let's just stick with Disney for a a bit, think about how many Disney stories are about someone who was stuck, a horrible person who could not or would not change, and then there's a supernatural intervention in their life, and suddenly there's change. Think about, just take Beauty and the Beast. You have a stubborn king who's arrogant and cares only about appearances. A poor beggar woman comes and visits him. He refuses to even give her any regard. And she suddenly transforms into a beautiful witch who then says, you're now cursed. You're going to look like a beast. You're going to be as ugly on the outside as you are on the inside until you learn the value of true love and sacrifice. And eventually, he has to be the kind of person who understands love and sacrifice and doing things for the good of others, and he is transformed as a person. Story after story follows the same thing. Someone who is stuck and, and can't change, and there's a supernatural intervention, and then there's change. That's what Paul is saying. He says you were someone who needed change. You were dead in your sins, unable to save yourself, and then God intervened in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus... God has broken into your life so that there might be change. And that's why when we come to 3, in chapter 3, when he starts to move towards commands about things that you are supposed to change, he bases it in the fact that you are already a new person. Look at what he says in in Colossians 3, 1-4. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Here he's saying, God has done this and so it's certain that he will finish the job. That he has set a day when he will set all things to right and on that day, even though right now you have been set free from the penalty of sin, there will be a day when you live completely free of the power of sin, where you will love like your Savior and King Jesus loves perfectly. You will be without the penalty of sin nor the power of sin. It says that day is coming. God will bring it to completion. You were dead, but now you're new in Jesus. You are a completely new person because God has intervened in your life in this incredible way. And who you will now be is fixed. You will be like Christ. You will love like Christ perfectly. And so this becomes the basis of the command that follows next in the passage that Cam read out to us. Look at what he says in 3, 5 to 12, right after the section we just read. So he says, Because you've been raised with Christ, because you're a new creation, because your life is hidden with Him and will be finally revealed on that last day, because that's all certain, therefore... Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living with them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul says that followers of Christ will experience an inner conflict. There will be an old self that is committed to the sinful desires and a new self that is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. He says there will be conflict. Now, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to have experienced some kind of moral conflict, right? Most people have had a point in life when they behaved in a way that they weren't proud of, and you may have even used the expression of that, look, that wasn't me. Whatever I did back then, that that wasn't me. But when people say that, what you're really saying is, that's not the person that I want to be. I mean, it was me. It was no one else. There was no one operating my mind out of my control. I did and said whatever it was that happened. And so when we say that wasn't me, what we're saying is that's not the kind of person that I'd want to be. I want to be clear, that's not what Paul is talking about here. When he says put on the new self, he's not like uh, Jesus has created a new aspirational you. Um, And if you just kind of will yourself towards that, you'll be like a new person. Now, he's saying who you will finally be is guaranteed and fixed with Christ. It will happen. It's set in stone. And because of that, 
live towards the new self that will be and leave alone the old self that is marked for demolition. Think about it in this. This is probably the easiest way to understand it. Imagine you own two houses in Sydney. So you're a multi-billionaire. And you had one house that was on dangerous foundations and it was marked for demolition. And you had the other house which was brand new. As new as a house could be and as well built as a house could possibly be. Which house are you going to invest in? Are you going to put time and effort into renovating the house that is marked for imminent demolition? Or are you going to put time and effort into the house that is built to last? I mean, it's a no-brainer. Of course you would put time, effort, money, care into the house that's going to last. That's the argument that Paul is running here in Colossians 3. He's saying this old sinful self is weakened and is dying and eventually will expire. It's marked for demolition. All of those old behaviors will one day pass away completely. So don't, don't sow into those which are going to disappear. Live out the new self that Christ has won for you. Live out the new self that you will be for all eternity. Because that is set, live towards that reality. And so he says, put off the old self and put on the new. Don't invest in the, in the self that is marked for demolition, but the one that is brand new, given to you in Jesus. This is what Paul is saying when he talks about the two selves. And it's not just in the book of Colossians. It's a theme that he repeats over and over again. It's fundamental to the way Paul explains change in the Christian life. Because you are a new person, it should lead to new behaviors. Not if you start new behaviors, you will become a new person. That is how every other worldview and religion approaches change. The gospel is unique says, because God has intervened in your life, because you are a new person, it will lead to new behaviors and to change. So Paul says, live toward that. And if you are here and you're skeptical about the claims of Jesus, or you wouldn't describe yourself as a follower of Jesus or even necessarily particularly spiritual, one of your hesitations about Jesus or Christianity or however you want to put it, might be that if you have to clean up your act before becoming a Christian, that seems like, in business terms, a lot of startup capital before getting into a venture. You might be thinking, like, the gospel is, if you clean up your act, if you get all these things out of your life, God will consider your application for eternal life. I need to make it clear that all throughout the Bible and the New Testament, the message is the same over and over again. Because you have been loved, you will change. Not if you change, you will be loved. And so if you're considering the claims of Christ, the starting point is Jesus. And if you realize as you investigate the person of Jesus that this wasn't just a person who walked on earth, but this was the Son of God who lived and died for me, then at that point you know that a supernatural change has occurred, that God has intervened in your life and given you eyes to see what only He can have you see, the glory and goodness of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus already, I want, to, I want you to, to actually take some time, whether you're tuning in at home or here with us this afternoon, I want you to ask yourself this question. As you heard that list of put-offs and put-ons, when was the last time in your walk with Jesus that you could clearly identify that you actually changed significantly in one of those areas? If you were to put a date on it, I know that can be tricky because change can happen over time. 
But when was the last time when you noticed yourself significantly growing in one of those areas? Years ago at Bible college, I remember um, one of the lecturers talking about just Christian growth and describing it like a mountain. And he's saying, if this mountain uh, were to describe holiness, growing like Jesus, he said, the sad thing is most Christians kind of start out moving up and growing more Christ-like really quickly. But somewhere about a third of the way up the mountain, most people kind of pitch camp. Once you're kind of not, you know, sleeping around, drinking, doing all kind of the obvious sort of wrong things or whatever, you sort of be like, I think that's holy enough for now. I'm going to pitch camp until Jesus comes back. And this happens for a bunch of reasons. Sometimes it's just a lack of belief that actual real holiness leads to deeper joy. Sometimes it's kind of the... Sometimes it's actually having had a few false starts with a, a real area of sin that sometimes people just be like, you know what, maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm just stuck with this until Jesus comes back. Sometimes it's a, a lack of belief that the Spirit of God is really going to work in your life in a significant way to change you in some degree. But it is often true that somewhere around mid to late 20s, if people have walked with Christ for an amount of time, they just kind of tap out. They make compromises with certain sins. So long as they don't be too intrusive into your life, you kind of just leave them there and pitch camp for the next few years until Jesus comes back. Paul is saying, that's not how Christians are to act. If you really get the gospel, that's not how you're to approach holiness. He says the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit of God is at work in you willing you towards new desires and new ways of living. And, the, and the, the urging is not, if you do this, God will be pleased with you, but actually because God has loved you so much, because he has made you an, an entirely new person, so live into this identity. Live it out. And so here's the challenge for you this week. I want you to ask the question, where is God calling you to deeper change? And to, to even be more specific about it, let me just reread the lists of put-offs and put-ons that Paul puts in there. He says, put off. This is the old self, the one that's dying, the one that's marked for demolition. It says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, Patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness, love. And maybe let me even narrow it even further. As you think about change, even over this week. Because with a list like that, I mean, you could go any which way, right? There's, there's so many things that he's laid out there. Let me, just, let me just nail it down to one thing. That rectangular-shaped device that's in your pocket or your hand or your bag, that thing that you touch on average two and a half thousand times a day, the most powerful habit-forming device that humanity has ever come up with, if you were to think about that device and then reflect back on Colossians 3, what behaviors would you say your phone is leading you towards? Is it making it hard to put on some of the things that really are the new self that is to live on into eternity? And is it making it hard to not continue with some of the older ones, the old self-behaviors. I mean, in some ways it's obvious, right? 
You don't have to be even a follower of Jesus to know that our smartphones are causing us a significant amount of trouble and misery. But does the smartphone lead you to sexual immorality, to exploit others for your own enjoyment, to not be compassionate and loving like Christ has been toward you? Does it lead you to covetousness? Does it make you discontent with what you've been given and it makes you want more and more and more? Are there apps that make you jealous of other people's lives and their joy becomes your sadness or vice versa? Or apps that make you want more and more things? As you think about the call to put off and to put on, my challenge would be this week, even as you just think about your phone, what are some things that you want to put off and what are some things that you want to put on? Maybe even one for one. Maybe take the first off each list. Maybe to put off sexual immorality and to put on compassion. Maybe to take away a habit that your smartphone is leading you towards that involves sexual immorality and to cut that off and to make it difficult to use, to get accountability software or to cut off the browser entirely or whatever it is and to put on compassion, to instead spend, let's say, a few minutes in the middle of the day praying for international justice ministry and the work that they do to pull people out of the sex trade. To have compassion on people who you may never meet, to even give towards that financially, to put off sexual immorality and to put on compassion. Or maybe it will be putting off covetousness and putting on kindness. To get rid of shopping apps and Instagram and the things that you know are designed to make you want more and more stuff And instead, to spend that time praying and considering where you might give money to make provision for the needs of others, to give away things rather than to get more things, that you might be putting off the old self and putting on the new. Whatever it is. Maybe it's to put away your phone because it just makes you more angry and irritable anyway. It makes you more, it reinforces those old self behaviors. I can tell you, for our kids, smart devices. They don't obviously have their own. They're way too young for that. But whenever they, whenever they have screen time, it's like, if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, whenever he puts on the ring, <laughs> he turns invisible, but then he gets really grumpy and weird. And, and it's the same with kids. As soon, as soon as you put the TV on, it's like they become invisible. They just disappear for a time. But once you switch it off, they're all grumpy and weird and a bit like, you know, like Mordor's had its way with them or something. But if you know that the amount of time you're spending on your phone is making you angry, irritable, and really drawing you away from putting your mind on the things that are above, on the new self where Christ is seated. Maybe it's time to just do something about it. And this week's the week. To meet with your missional community and encourage one another to put off the old self and put on the new because that's where joy is to be found. Whatever it is, I challenge you to do something, to really change. And we continue on this project all the way through the next series. The studies at the end of each one are designed so that we would help one another to change week on week on week, so that we'd have more reason to celebrate Christ and His work in our lives and more evidence among us to encourage one another to say, look, we are together becoming new people in Christ, the people that He has made us to be, the salvation that He has won for us. I'm going to pray for us that we do that very thing, but all through the power of God for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the gospel, we're not just saved from the penalty of sin, but you save us bit by bit 
and inch by inch from the power of sin also. And one day, we'll experience what it is like to live as entirely holy people. And until then, as you make us more and more like Jesus, may we trust in you and depend on you as bit by bit we put off the old self and put on the new. And Father, we pray that even amongst this church, that there would be much reason to glorify Christ as we see genuine and deep change in one another and in ourselves. That we might be able to testify that your spirit is at work in your people to transform us deeply and all for the glory of your name. And Father, we pray these things that you might be glorified in your people. Amen.